If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Cats have played a crucial part in human societies over the centuries, from the ancient Egyptians, who treated them with respect and adoration, to the early modern Europeans, who cast them as devilish familiars, to Victorian imperialists, who sought to control and subdue nature. For the latest episode of our Everything You Wanted to Know series, I put your questions on our feline friends to animal historian Dr Andrew Flack. So thank you so much for joining me today, Andy. Hello, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to hear all about the history of cats. We've had lots of questions sent in. And I want to start right at the beginning of the story. So we've had a question from TW on Twitter. When were cats first domesticated? It's a really good question. And they were domesticated between about 9,000 and 12,000 years ago, around the same sort of time that dogs were domesticated, actually. And it kind of coincided with when human societies kind of stopped being nomadic and started setting up kind of settlements, becoming agricultural. So why is it that they're domesticated then? Because they're useful. It's really, it's, really, it's, it's quite simple, really. Cats control rodents, which is quite different to dogs. Dogs had much more to offer in terms of kind of social interaction, man's best friend, all that sort of stuff. Cats didn't perform that purpose at all or that function at all. To begin with, it was it was very much a a question of what can they do to help us preserve our food, really, and then protect our food, even. Mm, that's so interesting because today, of course, I'm a cat owner myself, and I have a really well. I feel close to my cat. I'm sure he doesn't feel the same to me. Mm-hmm. When is it that the social aspect starts to become more important in that relationship? So that's quite a complicated question. So I can speak quite generally mm-hmm. about it that. Cats become pets, I suppose, kind of really from the 18th century onwards. So for much of their history then, we're talking many thousands of years, they are kind of simply performing this practical function. They also go through a period in the kind of medieval and early modern period in Europe in particular, 
where they're kind of generally despised, actually, by, by lots of people. And it's only with the kind of 18th and 19th century where pet keeping becomes much more of a cultural phenomenon in Europe in particular, that people start kind of thinking about them as kind of creatures of the home, I suppose. Now, they were they were always in the home, but they were doing so catching rats and mice and other rodents. But it was in that period, really, that they become kind of cherished parts of the home, I suppose. Mm. And I want to stick with that idea of the home, because we've had a question from Trace Care on Instagram. When did people start having indoor cats? Is it right from the very beginning, based on what you were just saying? Yes, pretty much. I guess we can think about this in different ways. So cats were always coming indoors and they were invited indoors in order to control the vermin that was also living indoors. But kind of that transition to having cats who were meant to mainly live indoors is again a kind of a phenomenon that emerges with the kind of pet cultures, I suppose, from the 18th century onwards really. Mm. And continuing to think about them and that transition as pets then, I wanted to ask you about when we start to see pedigree cats. We've had a few questions sent in on this. So we've had one from Alexandra Christiane on Instagram who says, when did humans first start breeding cats into pedigree breeds? So I suppose we can think of a breed of cat as something that's emerging from or taking it away from the kind of wild version of the cat. And so the first kind of a known breed of cat kind of descended from the African wildcat, uh, really. And the African wildcat is generally much larger than the domestic cat we have today. A longer body, brown with kind of black stripes, bigger ears. And as they started to become domesticated, domesticated versions of those cats would then breed with the wild versions. And that, over the course of time, created this particular kind of breed, which was known as the Egyptian Mao cat. So that's perhaps the first known, like, breed but then breeding as a as a kind of activity or a hobby is is again a 19th century phenomenon and it's emerging around the same time as people are doing the same sort of thing with dogs and it's really about control and power and mastery and prestige and about manipulating biology to create create living things with particular characteristics that's also when you get particular kind of governing councils that kind of pop up that kind of control the breed and decide what is a breed and what isn't a breed it's when you get cat and dog shows where people can show off the, like, the best in show. So all of this is emerging around the same sort of time. And it really is about, it's part of that broader story around kind of evolution and the way in which life works and the idea that you can make a better breed or you can change an animal in the way that you wish to. We're talking in the West here, I'm kind of Western scientific ideas. And that's why you get then this huge diversity of breeds, because, of course, different groups want different things and are creating different types of animal in the process. And can you tell us a bit more about some of the breeds that come out in that time? You have the kind of British short hair, the mm. British long hair. So that's a, a really important kind of distinction there that changes the whole look and feel mm. of the cat. Like the Persian cat, a prestigious breed. The Siamese cat... A bit of a kind of bit of a marmite cat, really, which is still today, I think, because it kind of looks both cat-like and not cat-like in in kind of significant ways, I think. So, but there are many, there are so many, so so many different breeds that reflect really this this huge diversity of ways in which people were thinking about what a perfect cat might look like, what kind of characteristics are really desirable in a cat. 
And thinking about characteristics then, I want to go next to a question from Joe Brown on Facebook who says, how have our ideas about cats' behaviour and personalities varied across time periods and cultures? Enormously. So that's a really complicated question. It's a really great question, but it's it's complicated because there are common strands that go across lots of cultures. So very generally, there's this sense that cats are feminine, and that's kind of rooted in the perception of the body and behaviour of the, of the cat itself. But then there's also these culturally specific kind of ideas as well. So the idea that a cat is a cherished member of the family is something that emerges really, I suppose, or, or kind of manifests in one way in Western Europe in the context of pets and pet keeping. But preceding that, in the early modern or late medieval early modern world, there's also the association of cats with, with evil, with Satan himself, with witchcraft. So really, the interesting thing about all animals, actually, is that they are both like biological, physical things, but they're also products of culture. And because they're products of culture, the way we think about them is so diverse and changes over the course of place and time. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So thinking of that idea of cats being a product of culture then, I want to go right back to one of the most well-known ancient civilizations, ancient Egypt. And I think for many listeners, when we say history of cats, this is what's first going to come to mind. Why is it that cats and ancient Egypt are so interlinked? That's a really good question, actually. And I think one of the answers is that there are simply lots of cats living there. So ancient Egypt civilization is is where we get that first breed, the Egyptian Mao cat, that first kind of descendant, I suppose, of the African wild cat. So I think it's simply that they're, they're there and they appear in, in Egyptian art. They appear as mummified creatures too. But actually, in lots of ways, cats were not seen as especially different to other creatures living at the time. If you look at Egyptian gods and goddesses, most of them are in the form of some sort of animal. So the Egyptian, the cat manifests as the god, goddess Bastet, which is associated with fertility. But there's also Sekhmet, which is the, like the head of the lion, so another kind of cat, which was associated with power. But there are many others. There's uh, gods with kind of eagles and jackals as, as kind of animal bits of them. So, so I think the answer to the question then is is about that kind of ubiquity of the cat as a as suddenly kind of emerging as part of everyday life in a way that moved beyond simply a controller of pests and vermin, but as something a bit more than that. Mm. And you mentioned in that answer that some were mummified. And we've had a question on this from Maria von Rumer on Instagram, who says, were cats commonly mummified by the Egyptians? So cats were fairly commonly mummified by Egyptians, and they appear in several different contexts in that sense. So first of all, they were mummified 
and then buried in particular kind of cat graveyards or cat cemeteries. They were also mummified as offerings to gods or goddesses, and they were mummified to go in the tombs of kind of prominent individuals as part of that body of materials that would take the individual then into the afterlife. Mm, so it's that sense of ownership again coming through. Yeah, it's yeah, it's definitely a sense of ownership, but also like if, if you look at what's in these kind of tombs, what we find is is everything that the person might need to ensure both the kind of safe travel through the underworld into the afterlife, but then also what they might need to have a kind of good afterlife. So there's also that sense of well, this is a, a creature that's imp- like culturally important in some way to that individual and to their kind of their home. That's really interesting. And we've had a few questions in about cats as deities, as we were talking about earlier, and I want to just focus on this for a tiny bit longer. Mm. So TW on Twitter says, cats were seen as divine animals in Egypt, but how were they viewed in other cultures? Similarly, Jess Junior 27 on Instagram, I know cats were worshipped in Egypt, but were they important anywhere else in the world? The unhelpful answer is, again, that it, well, it depends on time and place. But a kind of more general answer might be that actually cats are also really important in Islamic kind of traditions too. So the gentle treatment of cats is part of Islamic tradition and they're admired in that sense for their cleanliness. The Prophet Muhammad, for example, explicitly prohibited killing and bad treatment of cats. So that's an example of a particular culture that thinks about cats in that particular way. But of course, there are others that across space and time have really vilified and kind of equated cats not not necessarily with good attributes and characteristics, but with very thoroughly bad ones too. Mm, definitely. And let's come on to that vilification now. So we have had a fair few questions being sent in about their connections with witchcraft. And the first one I want to go to is from Furcoat on Instagram, who says, why do we associate cats specifically with witches? I think that a lot of this comes down to the ways in which cats behave, actually. So they're nocturnal, largely, or, or active at the night, and they, and they tend to be active at the night in ways that we can't see. So they kind of leave the home or they leave the domestic space and they go off and do things and who knows what they do. So there's that, that kind of sense of an independence in the nighttime that we, historically, have not been able to have. There's also this kind of sense that they're very different to the dog in that they appear to be disloyal. They appear to want us only when they need us right so there's that i think that's important and that kind of sets them apart as something that can't be trusted but it's also important to note that actually cats are only one type of animal that's associated with witches actually we tend to think of the black cat and the contemporary culture has reinforced that like the black cat in sabrina and the teenage witch for example and the black cat in hocus pocus there are so many but actually witches familiars were also seen as kind of fox, toads, birds, dogs, rats, many, many different kinds of animals. And that's broadly because there was this sense that witches were able to have this uh, kind of relationship with the lower creatures of the world in a way that more kind of civilised, in inverted commas, individuals uh, were unable to. Mm. And I'd like to circle back to the black cat later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before, I'd like to go to a question from June Gustafsson from Facebook, which is, why was there a papal order to kill cats? So I don't think there was, actually. Mm. So I think this is a myth. And I think it's a, 
very popular myth that actually emerges really from the idea or from the history of the church's theological thinking around around cats and around Satan and demons and things like that. And I think what it really, really reflects is those Christian associations that Satan could take the form of a cat, that demons could take the form of a cat. So there's a really, there's a really strong kind of foundation for that myth. But I think the idea that the Pope or the papacy turned around and ordered cats to be killed, I think that's, that is just a myth. Yeah. Well, steering back to that discussion of witchcraft then, I wanted to ask you about the gender element because witches were often associated with femininity and you've mentioned earlier that cats are seen as a feminine creature. Does that commonality, that feminine link, is that important? Is that an important part of the story? Mm, yes, it's an extremely important part of the history of, mm. of cats, really. And, and again, that comes down in, in lots of ways to our perceptions around their body and behaviour. Mm. So they are sleek, they are clean, and those kinds of ideas were often equated with femininity. So as we move into the early modern period, or if we think about the early modern period, the association of cats with witchcraft and with solitary women in particular I think also reflects the independent nature of the cat, but also, also perhaps some sense that there's an unnatural kind of solitariness to the cat, especially when you think about humans as social animals, the other animals in our lives, which are dogs as social animals. The independence kind of created a whole other, a whole other set of kind of ideas and stereotypes. And again, that's reinforced as we go into the Victorian period in, in Britain in particular, where cats, because they're being brought into the home and they start to be depicted in paintings and later photographs of families and homes, they become equated with the domestic space. And women were kind of the emblems of domesticity in the Victorian period. The idea that the home is an, a nurturing place, and or the female cat is a, as a nurturing presence in the lives of her kittens. Again, was part of that story. But there is, of course, also a history of sexuality, which is part of this. And that tends to be much more negative in that women have been equated with the kind of the dangerous sexuality of cats, particularly the noisiness of their mating in the nighttime, the pred their predatory nature, their proclivity to play with their prey. And again, that has emerged in the ways in which people have kind of talked about sex workers, for instance, particularly promiscuous women, and in popular culture too. So the one that always springs to my mind is Catwoman, predatory, dressed in leather, attempting basically to seduce Batman for most of the 60s Batman television show. So the, the, the answer to your question really then is, is that there are many links to femininity and, and those are connected to kind of different attributes of the cat that are kind of thought about in different ways at different times. So much to unpack there. Mm -hmm. um, but where I'd like to circle back to is your discussion of their links to solitary women. Mm -hmm. We had a question from Leah Falcon 12 on Instagram. When and why did they become associated with old maids and solitary women? And something I was interested in off the back of that, the idea of the crazy cat lady trope. When does that start to come into play? Okay, so that's a really interesting question. And again, it comes back to the solitary nature of the cat, I think. And I think that was a very easy then connection to make 
the solitary feminine cat and the solitary female, the, the, the spinster, the old maid. And that's a trope that has been applied to kind of unmarried women across many contexts over the course of time. But there are also specific ways in which that manifested, which I think are really interesting. So the kind of solitary cat was a really common symbol used on anti-suffrage campaigns at the beginning of the 20th century and on propaganda kind of in that vein too. And they were particularly widespread on postcards that were distributed during that, that particular period. The cats that were used appeared sad and they were displayed within a domestic sphere to act as a warning to people who might sympathise with suffragettes. A warning that actually the place of women was in the home, not as political activists out in the street. And the cat is sad, therefore, because the, the place of the cat is in the home as, as a domesticated and domestic species. And this is important because suffragettes were obviously considered to be a real threat in this particular period. It's a significant sense that women should know their place and stay in their place. And this was also used to present husbands as emasculated. So the danger is not only to women if they leave their home, but perhaps more importantly, in at least in the kind of the mindset of the time, it's dangerous to husbands because they may be emasculated. They may have to perform the duties of the home. So that's really important. However, what the suffragettes do is they, they then appropriate that image of the cat which I think is really interesting. They take what's being used against them and they use it in their favour. And they present themselves not as cats, but they present the government as a cat. And that's using a different idea about the cat. The cat as cruel and violent, playing with its prey. And in this case, the women there are the prey. They are vulnerable to the powerful government that's out to get them. I think it's a really interesting example of the, that kind of connection. But I actually also wonder whether the, the idea of the solitary woman, but also the crazy cat lady, may have some of its roots in witchcraft. And the, the kind of the idea, the association between women accused of witchcraft and cats and crazy, insane, deviant, however we want to think about it, however people thought about it, I think is it's probably an important association that has echoed over the course of the course of time, I think. Mm. And earlier in the conversation, you mentioned a black cat, and this is what I want to come to next. So mm -hmm. Rach741006 on Instagram says, a black cat crossing your path is considered lucky or unlucky in different cultures. Where does that idea come from? So the legend or the stories around black cats actually appear across several different kind of cultures in several different times and places in really interesting ways. So one legend has it in the kind of context of, of Western Europe that emerged in the 1500s that a father and a son were travelling in England when a black cat crossed their path. And they then pelted the cat with rocks until the poor animal fled into the home of a woman who at the time was being accused of witchcraft. So again, we have that really interesting association that's emerging the next day, the father and the son saw the woman in question who lived in that house and she was limping and was bruised. So they assumed that witches could turn into black cats at night and that they had actually been throwing stones at the woman in, in a form of a cat. And it was that, really, that, that's the legend, I think, that kind of spawns this idea that black cats are unlucky because they are witches. So it's as simple as that, that they are abroad at night time, they are 
kind of there with malicious intent. But beyond that, there's also this kind of different cultures thinking about this in different ways. So that's one story, and it is, of course, only a story. But in some cultures, for instance, the direction that a cat walks is really significant too. So either left to right or right to left, in different cultures at different times, dictates whether you'll have good luck or bad luck. So there's a broader context in which we need to understand the kind of folklore attached to a black cat. And that's really the fact that animals are always cultural and that in the early modern period, in particular, they're often seen as omens, good or bad. Cats are one example. Barn owls might be thought of as another. They were kind of imagined or the screeches of barn owls were the souls of the dead. And this is all about people's attempts to understand the world and make sense of it, right? This is a pre pre-scientific world in the way that we understand it. And we can't think about this as irrational or even wrong, really. We need to think about it as different and as a way that people were attempting to, to make sense of a really kind of complicated, sometimes quite frightening world. I'm moving away then from their cultural associations to think about how they were practically used by people. I know you mentioned earlier in the conversation they did have a clear practical use in terms of pest control, Mm -hmm. but we've had a few questions in about their use in war. Um, So the first one I wanted to ask you is simply, how have cats played an important role in wartime throughout history? So that's a really good question, and they've performed several different roles over over a long expanse of time. So the earliest record that I think I can find about the use of cats in war is from around 500 BCE, and that's the Battle of Pelusium. And the battle was a decisive Persian victory over Egypt, and cats were were used by Persians almost at the front of their line of attack. And they, they used them because they knew that Egyptian people recognised a certain divinity within these cats, and so the Egyptians didn't want to harm them. And so therefore that gave the Persians a particular advantage. So that's quite a rare and unusual use of use of cats on the front line. Actually, much more commonly, they've been used in, in other ways too. So again, coming back to the essential, like practical role of catching vermin, well, that was very useful on warships. It was very useful in the trenches, very useful wherever people are camping and kind of settling down and where there's food and provisions and things like that, because that's always going to attract pests. In the First World War II, they were really important as companions, actually. So in the trenches, we do find particular groups of soldiers who have like a pet. Sometimes the pet is a cat, sometimes it's something else entirely. But actually, it was a really important symbol of home and a connection to home. And that then links us back to that idea that cats, domesticated cats from the 19th century, maybe a little bit before, are the symbol of the safety and the nurturing nature of the home. So that emotional connection is really important work, actually, that the cat, that cats could perform in the context of the horrors of war. And then, of course, there's, there's practical uses too. So in the First World War, again, they were often used to smell out poisonous gases because, of course, animals, many different animals, have sensory worlds that we don't possess. And as people understood how that might work, then they deployed those animals to people's advantage. And with their role in pest control, what's their relationship with disease? So I think cats potentially have had a really important role in the control of disease too, because of course the danger of rodents and 
I'm thinking about rats in particular, is not only that they'll come and spoil food, but also that they can bring infectious disease with them. And that's particularly true, of course, when humans start to settle down and you know leave their nomadic lifestyles behind and form settlements. That's also when we get a really sudden rise in infectious disease. They're able to circulate more quickly and animals are starting to gather in, in ecologies that are unusual before that time. So that control of disease is really, really significant as well. And thinking about that globalisation then, we've had a question from C.P. Davey on threads. How are cats connected to colonialism? That's a really great question. And to answer that, I think it's I think it's important to consider cats as more than the domestic cat. Because in the context of colonialism, we encounter big cats. And they play a really important role in the history of colonialism as as symbols in lots of ways. So the lion is the symbol of the British Empire, but also a symbol of the might of nature. Imagined as the most powerful creature that nature has produced. Almost, but not quite, the equal of the white man. The tiger is like the kind of Southeast Asian version of that, but seen as more feminine. So there's a masculinity to the lion, a femininity to the tiger, but they're both real and present dangers to colonialists. But because of that, they posed a really interesting challenge and great white hunters relished taking on that challenge and going out into the field, often working with indigenous people to find, pursue and kill and then collect these animals. And they did that for several reasons. First of all, to prove their power, prove the power of white civilization. If you can not only master the best that nature has to offer, but like an exotic nature, which is about the power of a particular place. But but by collecting the skin and bringing it back to museums, for instance, and often taken on tour as part of these kind of speaking tours that these hunters would do. It's this semi-permanent symbol of oppression, the oppression of nature, the oppression of other peoples, the power of the empire. So actually these big cats then are really important physical presences and really potent symbols in the whole history of colonialism. And changing tack now, I wanted to ask you a question from Vic150150 on threads. What are some of the famous cats in history? There are many, many, many famous cats in history across loads of different contexts. So Dick Whittington's cat, Puss in Boots, Garfield, the Cheshire Cat, and his grin. These are the famous cats of literature, and they've been used as really important kind of characters in many of these important and sometimes quite foundational stories that cultures have told about the world. But there are also real cats too. So Tabby and Dixie, which are Abraham Lincoln's cats. There's also Larry, the number 10 Downing Street cat. Ostensibly doesn't do anything, but (laughs) somehow is is an object of great fascination. I think these are examples of cats that become objects of of great interest simply because they are there. Mm. I I think in these kind of like these places that appear to, that actually in our minds are often completely human, like ultra political or ultra religious places. And the the presence of, of a cat Using that place as its home, I think it's quite subversive and really interesting to us. Mm. There's also Philisette, and this was a stray cat found in Paris and remains the only cat successfully sent into space. Uh, She made a 13-minute flight in 1963 so that scientists could study the impacts of space travel on a living creature before 
people were going to do that themselves um, or as part of that that broader process. And I think that's that brings to mind uh, for me, I think, not only the really interesting stuff around famous cats, the cats that we kind of separate from the big body of other of all cats and think about as particularly special, but also the importance of thinking about regular cats, the cats with no name, the cats that we don't know about, the cats that just lived their lives in history, formed relationships with people that were really powerful, sometimes that were treated really awfully and exploited. And sometimes for me, the, the everyday, the unheard, the silent is... Is, is greater interest than the super significant. That was Dr. Andrew Flack speaking to me, Rhiannon Davis. Andrew is an animal and environmental historian at the University of Bristol. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 